Welcome back to the program. There's an old Groucho Marx joke by a Woody Allen about two women sitting in a restaurant complaining about the food. One turns to the other and says, the food here is so terrible. The other turns around and says, yes, yes, and the portions are so small. In a way, that same joke could be used to describe the seafood industry in America. We have more ocean than any other nation. We produce more fresh seafood than any other nation. Yet the amount of seafood extracted from those oceans that we keep here in the U.S is so small. Why this disconnect? Why is our relationship to seafood so attenuated? And is there some connection or consistency between the decline of farming in America and the decline in domestically consumed seafood? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Paul Greenberg. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller and award-winning book, Four Fish. He's lectured at Google, Harvard, and the U.S. Senate, as well as numerous other institutions. He's currently a fellow at the Blue Oceans Institute and a writer-in-residence at New York City's South Street Seaport Museum. It is my pleasure to welcome Paul Greenberg back to this program to talk about his newest work, American Catch, the fight for our local seafood. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jeff, great to be back. It's great to have you here. In many ways, that is the American Catch, this idea that we have so much seafood that is actually fished here in the U.S., but we we export all of it, and in fact, a lot of the seafood that we eat is stuff that we import from somewhere else. How did we get to that point? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Eighty More than 85% of the seafood that Americans eat um, is imported, and about half of it is farmed, um, and we send about 3 billion pounds uh, of seafood every year uh, abroad, um, American-caught wild fish. Um, how we got into this mess? Well, a few things. Um, first of all, uh, we as a country are not so into fish anymore. Um, used to be the average New Yorker, where I'm from, ate about 35 pounds um, of seafood per year. Now we eat about 15 pounds. Um, and if you compare that to you know what I collectively call land food, um, you know, yeah. industrial-produced um, pork and poultry and beef, we eat more than 200 pounds of that. So right there, there's that issue. Um, so that probably explains the degree to which we're exporting stuff. Um, but as far as the imports are concerned, um, we don't seem to want to pay um, good prices for good seafood. And so the imported stuff, the tilapia, the shrimp, um, another fish that most people don't realize they're even eating called Pangasius catfish, number six most consumed seafood in America, all that farm stuff comes to us and is super cheap compared to the really high-quality wild seafood um, that we're exporting. So is what's driving this the market forces? Is what's driving this price, or is there something else driving it that has to do with other issues, environmental reasons and, and other issues? Well, price is certainly a large component of it today, but you also have to look at what I think of as kind of the destruction of our nation's seafood infrastructure and it's part ecological and it's part mechanical. Um, from an ecological standpoint, you know, this country used to be um, probably the world's largest uh, producer of oysters. Um, up until about 1920, we produced about 2 billion pounds of oysters per year, which is um, equivalent to what our per capita shrimp consumption is today. Now our oyster industry is, um, well, you know, it dropped to about 1% of historical capacity um, up until about 1972. Now it's about 14%, but it's still severely, severely depressed. And interesting thing is that oysters um, are also key to fish abundance, um, more on the East Coast than the West Coast. But on the East Coast, you know, the presence of an oyster reef can more than double the amount of 
fish that are swimming in that area. They provide cover, they provide shelter, they provide food. And so we've lost so much uh, wild oyster reef that we're losing um, seafood as a result. Um, the other thing, though, as I said, there's also a mechanical infrastructure point of view. And like there in California, um, you know, California used to be um, a huge processor um, in addition to a huge catcher of seafood. You know, you guys, you know, Red Cannery Row, I'm sure, and mm -hmm. um, you might be aware that California produces just lots and lots of squid. Well, you know, as California has gentrified or as the coast has gentrified and more and more people want to live on the coast, um, we're finding, or Californians are, and coastal people in general are finding, they don't really want to create the economic space for seafood processing to exist. So like um, squid, for example, I did um, an op-ed for the LA Times last week. 90% um, of California squid that's caught in California waters is frozen at sea, uh, sent to China, defrosted, um, processed, and you know, cut up into rings, refrozen, and then comes back to California twice frozen. So why is that? Well, because we don't have processors here anymore. You know, we've, we've let that all atrophy, atrophy, and we've outsourced our food system uh, to China. And there's also the slippery slope that the more we're concerned about fishing not being in the view sheds of the coast, the more that property tends to become polluted as it's neglected over time, the environmental structure changes, and then it becomes not the ideal place for fishing in the first place. That's right. I mean, um, you know, it, it's in, in the East Coast where um, we've got a lot of uh, coastal development in you know, ecosystems that are called salt marshes. This is particularly an issue where you drain the salt marsh, um, you put in septic systems and sewage systems. Um, you know, salt marsh is one of the most productive ecosystems on the planet. Um, it actually sequesters more carbon than a tropical rainforest on a per acre basis. We've lost something like 70% of our salt marsh in this country, and it's in California too. I mean, mm -hmm. the San Joaquin um, uh, Delta, key example, um, you know, not just uh, gentrification development, but agriculture development has drained large portions of those San Joaquin, and the San Joaquin is really important for seafood production. Um, you put in things like big ag, you put in things like, you know, condo developments, um, you're going to pollute the marine environment, and you're going to make problems for seafood production um, further down the line. You talked about oysters. Oysters used to be a staple of New York, and it's pretty remarkable what's happened and, and how dangerous it is now even eating oysters from New York. It's true. I mean, the average New Yorker used to eat about 600 local New York City oysters per year. Um, from New York City waters. Um, and I should add, too, that it's true of San Franciscans. You know, San Francisco, when the San Joaquin was healthy, had giant populations of um, what are called Olympia oysters, different species than we have on the East Coast. But a lot, a lot of oysters in both watersheds. Um, in your case, you guys lost your oysters largely due to the gold industry. Um, gold, you know, requires all sorts of pollutants to be pumped into the water. Um, and losing you know, polluting and, and losing the marsh caused you guys to lose a lot. Uh, in our case, in New York, um, we had a huge sewage issue um, up until about, you know, really till the Clean Water Act came along, we were putting more than 600 million gallons of raw sewage into the New York City waters each and every day. Um, and once people started getting sick uh, from eating oysters in that sewage, then we abandoned it together. By 1925 or so, we shut down our last remaining oyster farms in New York City. Um, and that's when really the bad pollution started. That's when um, all these 
um, World War II era chemicals started going into the water, um, persistent organic pollutants, um, chromium, all these heavy metals, and then you know even even the byproducts of Agent Orange, which were manufactured in New Jersey, were dumped into the um, Greater New York Bight. So when you have that kind of thing going, you know, it's very hard to have a food system. What impact, you mentioned it a few moments ago, what impact did the Clean Water Act have on seafood in America? Oh, well, it's, it's really been a tremendous uh, boon for oysters um, uh, and, and for a lot of other things. But the Clean Water Act in particular, you know, it mandates that all American waters by a certain date, and actually I think in the Clean Water Act it says by 1987, right. all I think is federal waterways need to be uh, swimmable and fishable. Well, we didn't quite get there, but what we have seen is a huge uptick in the oyster industry. Um, you know, it had been at 1% of historical capacity. Now it's at about 14%. And um, I don't know if you're seeing this in, in, in your area, but in New York City, like the Buck Oyster Special has really become uh, a, a common thing. You can go into many, many happy hours, have very, very good oysters for, for a dollar a piece, whereas you know, 15 years ago, you know, you're looking at 2 3 $4 for an oyster. Um, that kind of thing is a direct result of how many, how much cleaner the water is and how many more oyster producers have gotten going in recent years. Um, the Clean Water Act also acts as a through line throughout the book because I also talk about um, the, you know, the BP oil spill and the effect that that has had on shrimping. Um, you know, it, the oil industry has had a huge effect on the Mississippi Delta, which is the real engine of shrimp production in this country. Um, but it's not just the oil spill that has affected it. It's really 100 years of canalizing, um, uh, uh, pipelining um, the Mississippi Delta, which is causing it to disappear at a rate of about a football field every hour. Um, the penalties, the Clean Water Act penalties that could be levied against BP could, however, pay for a huge amount of restoration of the Louisiana marsh. So you can see that the act finds its way into our seafood system in many, many ways. Um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, I was talking to Carl Safina, who's a MacArthur Genius mm -hmm. Fellow, um, and we were talking about the Clean Water Act and why it is that so many conservatives um, seem to have a problem with things like the Clean Water Act. And what Carl was saying was really poignant. He said, the reason everyone seems to hate the Clean Water Act from the right these days is because they don't remember when the water was really dirty. Um, you know, it's easy to attack something that has done so much good and it's not really visible anymore and just look at it as a bunch of bureaucracy. That's actually critical to the health of our seafood economy. There is a self-perpetuating nature to all of this in that so much of the talk for so many years when the water really was dirty, the talk about pollution and the impact on the seafood in many ways convinced people to eat less seafood, arguably. It's true. And, um, you know, I think, People, it's funny, a, a shellfish producer in New England said to me that seafood has this way of, seafood scandals, food scandals have a way of spreading illogically across species and ecosystems. So, you know, somebody, he said, somebody gets sick eating a lobster in Florida and, and people will, will stop eating striped bass in Maine. You know, it's just this, <laughs> this idea that something out there is dirty. So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of, the, the American Ocean has a lot of, um, self-promotion to do in order to get people back on board. And it's not just pollution. Um, the other bad message that has gotten out there is the message of overfishing. And yes, yeah, certainly in the world, there is a lot of overfishing that has gone on. Um, there are serious problems with that in other countries. But the United States in the last 20 years has really 
done very good work um, as far as rebuilding its American wild American fish supplies. And I think Americans need to kind of embrace that and reward it by eating American seafood and asking for American seafood when they go to the seafood counter. Has the American seafood industry done a bad job, especially compared, for example, to the beef industry and other trade organizations, in promoting the value of American seafood? I, I think it, it, it could do a better job. I mean, it's really, um, the seafood industry tends to kind of, I mean, you look at fishermen as a rule, are not the most um, socially adept people. I mean, they, one of the reasons they choose to go fishing is so they don't have to deal with people. And I think that that attitude pervades the seafood industry. Um, generally speaking, the seafood industry will sell to the highest bidder. And right now, the highest bidder is China or Japan or Korea, people who, as one fisherman in California put it to me, are, are quote, hip to seafood. I mean, he, he was saying that the people in Asia are just more hip to seafood. The average Chinese person eats 35 pounds of seafood a year, whereas we only eat about 15. So, um, and the industry here, rather than trying to kind of argue its case to America, is kind of more content to just sort of, well, you know, people in China are ready to pay more money for it. Forget it. Let's just do that and not really worry too much about trying to make our case to Americans. Talk a little bit about the quality of the seafood that we're getting from Asia. Most of the shrimp you talk about is coming from Thailand these days. Yeah, a lot of it's coming from Thailand. Um, and Thailand, you know, it's funny. I did a, an article for Prevention Magazine a few years ago. And, uh, you know, as, as what happens with some of those health-oriented magazines, they asked me to find out, you know, what is the best imported shrimp that we could be having since so much of our shrimp is imported. So I talked to a lot of different people, and everyone concluded that Thailand you know, had the best standards, that was the best safety, et cetera, et cetera. Well, lo and behold, a few years down the line, it comes out um, in um, the newspaper, The Guardian, recently, that a certain portion of the labor that is used to catch all of the trash fish that are then ground up and turned into shrimp feed, the people who are catching those fish, that a certain portion of them are slaves. That slave labor is, seems to be regularly used in um, the fishing industry in Thailand, um, at least the industry that surrounds the harvesting of trash fish. Um, and then in addition to that, Thailand suffered a huge um, shrimp epidemic called uh, early mortality syndrome. This is a disease that started in China and swept over Southeast Asia and hit Thailand last year, and they lost about a billion dollars in shrimp crop uh, last year. So when you have a disease outbreak like that, that's a real sign that the system is being pushed too hard and that may be the fact that Americans eat more shrimp than any other seafood, more than the next two most popular seafoods combined, in fact. That's a real signal that says, hey, we're pushing these systems too hard. We need to rethink the seafood that we're eating. Talk a little bit about the growing industry of farm seafood, which is really most of what we're getting here in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, uh, the aquaculture or you know, fish farming, seafood, whatever, mariculture, whatever you want to call it, is the fastest growing food system on the planet. And it's growing at something, you know, some globally I think around 7% per year. You know, so if you wanted to buy futures in something, um, if there was some way that you could invest in an aquaculture fund, probably wouldn't be a bad investment. Um, it's particularly growing in Asia. Um, China is by far the largest uh, seafood farmer in the world. And um, you know, very, very huge producer. And it's come to that way through funny, lots of different funny avenues. One of the interesting stories that came up with in the book is uh, in 1982, um, a Chinese aquaculture scientist from Qingdao uh, came to Martha's Vineyard, 
place where I like to vacation. And he went um, to a pond in Tisbury and gathered up 120 farmed scallops. And um, he took them to China. Along the way, most of them died, but 26 survived. And those 26 became the basis of a multi-million dollar scallop farming industry, a lot of which gets sold back to the United States. So that kind of thing is happening all the time. The Chinese also grow American blue and channel catfish, which, again, American scientists brought over to China, um, started growing them in China. And then a lot of times that catfish is sold back to us um, simply because China can do it cheaper. And China actually also puts food production, um, you know, puts a larger emphasis on food production along the coast than we do. How big or how small, I guess I should say, is the high-end seafood industry, the high-end seafood demand for American seafood here now? Um, you know, it's, it's a small club. Um, you know, you look at things like, um, you know, just looking at the sheer poundage of seafood, 15 pounds of seafood per person per year compared with 200 pounds of land food. Um, so already it's quite small. Um, certain fish like black cod, for example, which is a lovely fish, high in omega-3s, um, is really an elite fish and almost never comes uh, across our fish counters at all. Almost all of it goes uh, abroad to Asia. But what is interesting is that um, I was at a conference a few years ago, and they were talking about seafood consumption in this country. When they looked at the demographics of the people who did eat seafood, they were generally highly educated. They were highly successful financially. Um, and um, they were very passionate about the seafood that they ate. So I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if you eat fish, I don't know if you'll get smart and rich, but the smart and rich people do seem to be eating seafood. What happens is that that then becomes the perception of seafood, and the perception of it as something that is too expensive, and it's contributing to less and less demand for it. Right, and it's seen as this elite thing when, you know, 100 years ago that was not the case at all. I mean, oysters were, in New York City, the poor man's food. There, there used to be this thing called the Canal Street Plan, um, where at all the oyster houses that were along the rivers in New York, you could get all the oysters you could eat for a sixpence. Um, although, apparently, if, you, uh, if the barman found that you were eating too many oysters, he would slip you a bad one, and that would quickly end your <laughs> all-you-can-eat special. Um, but, you know, it, it was definitely a huge part of our, our, our diet, um, uh, the average New Yorker used to spend um, more on oysters than they did on butcher meat. So, again, it's just a reflection of how that kind of thing has changed. Um, and I do think, you know, I feel bad for the average consumer. I mean, I fish a lot, and because I'm in the seafood world, you know, <laughs> I, I periodically, believe it or not, get mailed a fish, um, which, you know, like in The Godfather, that would mean that somebody you liked was dead. But in my case, it just means somebody's trying to promote a fish. Um, but I do feel bad for consumers. I do think that the USDA and the government needs to think about some way to ease prices um, at the counter so that more Americans can eat American seafood. Um, I don't want to subsidize the fishing industry. I think that's, you know, got us into overfishing situations in the first place. But the consumer somehow needs a way to get back to the fish counter because we do know that it is really good for you and much better for you than a lot of land food. You talk about one example where technology has been brought to bear in terms of people finding out where the fresh fish is. Um, oh, yeah. Well, so there, there's interesting. So one of the um, – uh, there's a couple things going on, but the thing I focus in on the book is um, a place called uh, – there's a town called Delcom in uh, Louisiana. It's actually spelled Del Cambre, but it, they pronounce it Delcom. Uh, but in Delcom, 
uh, a uh, guy named Tom Seamel came up with this idea that what if shrimpers and fishermen could communicate with people uh, onshore and tell them what they've caught um, and let them know when they're coming into port so they can buy it. Um, so they started this system called Delcom Direct, where the fishermen literally text or tweet or um, post uh, to a site what they've caught while they're still at sea. And then they get hit by mobs of people at the docks ready to buy right off their boat. Um, that's great for the consumer because they're getting super fresh seafood, and it's great for the fishermen because they don't have to pay a lot of middlemen to move their catch. Um, now, it's just a small venture at this point, uh, but it's spreading to other parts of Louisiana. Um, and I think it's a model that might be something we could try at docks all around the country. As the Asian population in the U.S. increases, the Chinese population, the Japanese, the Korean population, as that does happen, will we take a new look at seafood as the demand grows in that regard? You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think certainly, you know, I like to go to Chinatown in New York because it's the only place where I really see a seafood culture at all. Um, and I do think that Asian cultures are going to bring more seafood into America, at least from a, you know, a net consumption. Um, the question is, is will that bleed over into other cultures, like will fish eating just stay contained within the Chinese community and the Japanese community, or will we all kind of get a taste for it? I'm not quite sure what's going to happen with that. The jury's still out. Um, I do know that, you know, a huge, um, there is a, you know, a trade like in California, I was interested to find out during a research trip I was doing, there's a pretty large trade in live fish in California, um, rockfish in particular, um, and it turns out that almost all of those live-caught fish and live-kept fish are going to Chinese markets. Um, you know, American markets will not keep a live fish in the tank for people to eat later on. Part of the problem is there's an awful lot of fish served here in America that really bears very little relationship to fish, you know, the McDonald's fish sandwich being perhaps the penultimate example. Yeah. I mean, one person in the seafood industry once said to me that Americans largely perceive seafood as a, as a dough delivery system, you know, <laughs> something that you could dunk in a lot of dough and fry. <laughs> so if we're trying to move dough, we're doing a great job. But, you know, the filet fish sandwich, for example, is um, actually quite often it's Alaska pollock, which is a perfectly good fish, um, you know, pretty nutritious. Um, but it gets, you know, frozen in these giant blocks and then processed and turned into filet fish sandwiches. It's also turned into um, fake crab. Uh, it comes from, it's actually not crab, it's actually pollock um, that's in your California roll. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, I just did an article recently, and I'll, I'll send you guys a link, um, uh, for the Washington Post, where I took a whole fish, a red snapper, um, and red snapper, I should say, has been rebuilding nicely in the Gulf in the last few years. So I took a whole red snapper, and from a single red snapper, I was able to produce three meals for a family of four. Um, one from one fillet, one from another fillet, and then another one from the head and the rack. So, you know, there are ways to really confront the whole fish. I love to fish. I know how to deal with fish. I wish more people did um, because I think it's a really great way to kind of be more in touch with your food and to serve healthier food in the process. And is there a link do you see between the decline of, of farms in America, the decline of farming, and the declines in fishing that we've been talking about? Yeah, so... Um, in general, um, Americans, you know, it's, things are getting more mechanized, and it's, you know, f less labor, larger operations um, doing less, you know, actual physical labor. And so, yes, I do think, you know, just like in the farming community, 
we're seeing a tremendous aging out of the fishing community. The average age of fishermen is you know, something like 55 or even 60. You know, it's, it's really, really old compared to the demographics of the country. Um, you know, in the land food world, in the terrestrial world, we are seeing something of a back-to-the-land movement. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in California, but in, certainly in the Northeast, in Vermont, we've got a lot of people, a lot of young people who want to farm. Um, fishing, not so much. Um, and I think it's because there are all sorts of barriers. You know, buying a boat is expensive. Getting into fishing in the first place requires a huge amount of knowledge to be, um, you know, digested and, and deployed. Um, so it's, it is a crisis in this country. And I think, you know, if we want to have fishing industry in this country, we have to figure out a way to bring young people into the fold. Paul Greenberg, his book is American Catch, The Fight for Our Local Seafood. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 